from 744 Ostrom Avenue, I'm Gael Fobes, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, crisis pregnancy centers provide misleading information on abortion. Podcast veteran Emma Fultz is here to break it all down. The winner of 22 Emmys, she's the SU alumna behind the Oscar-nominated documentary, RBG. And is it a bird? A plane? No, it's a crane, and it's an internet sensation. Sarah Slavin reports on the student behind the now infamous Walt. It's Tuesday, October 29th, 2019. Less than a mile from Liverpool High School stands Karenet Pregnancy Center of Central New York. And outside the center is a yellow sign that shows a woman staring seriously at the oncoming traffic, um, while the sign also advertises messages um, offering free pregnancy tests and ultrasound confirmation. I'm Emma Fultz and I cover news for the Daily Orange. Karenet Pregnancy Center of Central New York is one of three crisis pregnancy centers in Onondaga County. These crisis pregnancy centers just give you an idea of exactly what they are. They provide these services, but they're not necessarily like a Planned Parenthood. It's a bit of a different type of organization. Yes, absolutely. So uh, crisis pregnancy centers are oftentimes faith-based organizations, though not always. And the main difference between uh, crisis pregnancy centers and abortion clinics, such as Planned Parenthood, are that crisis pregnancy centers uh, very often do not have medical licenses. Um, And they do not provide abortion services. Um, Because of the uh, faith-based component of these centers in some cases, um, they are pro-life organizations. They don't provide abortions, um, and some of them don't offer contraception. But they do provide or refer for um, testing for STDs, ultrasound confirmation. So they provide some women's health resources that Planned Parenthood would provide, but they do not provide the full scale of um, pregnancy options that Uh, abortion clinics and Planned Parenthoods provide. And oftentimes the services that they provide are free of charge. So Mm -hmm. in that way, does it attract a certain type of person to come in? Sure. I spoke with Common Counselor uh, Bryn Lovejoy Grinnell, and she said crisis pregnancy centers um, often target low-income women um, and women of color. And so these advertisements that offer free pregnancy tests and free ultrasound confirmation are kind of the one advertising pull that these centers use to kind of lure women into their centers because they don't offer um, abortion services um, by simply advertising outside that you can get a pregnancy test here for free, an ultrasound here for free. That attracts women into their center. And only then, once they're in the center, do they sometimes realize that abortion is not something offered here. And sometimes those services for people that don't have insurance, so oftentimes these low-income people, they will be quite expensive if they weren't to get them at a place like this. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. Some of these centers are religiously affiliated. Not all of them have the medical licenses. How about the ones that you looked at in New Hope, CareNet? What is their status with that? Sure. So New Hope Family Services does not have a medical license. Um, They are a licensed adoption agency, and that is another component of the services that they provide. CareNet Pregnancy Center of Central New York uh, refers, and New Hope does as well, uh, they refer to uh, a doctor for their ultrasound um, and their STD screening. So in that sense, there is some sort of medical uh, legitimacy to the services they provide. But Karenet Pregnancy Center of Central New York also has a limitations of services form that they go through with each, with each client. And that essentially states that the peer counselors, which provide the post-abortion counseling that they also offer, they are only trained in crisis management, um, but are not necessarily licensed or degree professionals. So in one of those forms, for example, it, it basically 
details the fact that they are not going to be able to refer people to the same set of services that another provider may. So they, being a pro-life organization, do not want to refer people to, let's say, abortion or contraceptive. Yes. So New Hope and CareNet both do not provide contraception and they, um, along with not performing abortions, do not refer for abortions. These organizations... Their mission, ideally, from what it from what it sounds like, is they want to limit the number of abortions, but they also want to provide these services to women. How are they trying to reach that first goal of trying to reduce the number of abortions? Is the, are there certain tactics or are there certain ways of communicating that they're deploying to try and uh, achieve that goal? Sure. Um, so CareNet Pregnancy Center of Central New York in particular offers uh, to clients a pamphlet called Before You Decide. Um, and this pamphlet um, details the supposed risks of abortion and the claims in the pamphlet are, or some of them anyway, are misleading. Um, they detail the physical and emotional risks of abortion, um, some of them based in fact, some of them um, a bit exaggerated or... Um, cherry-picked, if you will. For example, one of the claims is in the pamphlet is that medical experts can continue to debate the link between breast cancer and abortion. And while there may be some debate, that debate is not based in facts because the National Cancer Institute um, concluded in 2003 that there is no link between abortion and breast cancer. Um, the pamphlet also claims that abortion carries emotional risks that are with symptoms similar to PTSD, and crisis pregnancy centers have reported the existence of a post-abortion syndrome, and the post-abortion syndrome is essentially all the symptoms of PTSD but attributed to the aftermath of an abortion. And so this has also been rejected by the American uh, Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association. The claims that they use um, are misleading at best. Um, they also, in terms of describing the physical aspects or the physical risk of abortion, um, they mention the risk of infection, the risk of death, the risk of um, hemorrhaging, though hemorrhaging uh, occurs in less than 1% of abortion, and abortion as a procedure is 14 times safer than childbirth. Um, so those are some of the claims that they um, use to uh, persuade women out of having an abortion, but both CareNet and New Hope encourage adoption or parenting. They provide resources to parents. CareNet uses an incentive program to essentially take parenting classes to earn baby goods. New Hope has a care corner of baby goods. So they kind of provide these services as well that say abortion may be a, a risky procedure. If you decide to parent, we have these services to help you. So almost in that way, it's a twofold measure where it's provide enough messaging and uh, give people this misleading understanding of what an abortion can do. Uh, one of the other claims that you had was that uh, it gives people the impression that they'll be infertile. Um, and that was another uh, claim that uh, mm -hmm. you appear to debunk in your article. And then I think one other thing is the fact that not only are they doing this abortion messaging to try and dissuade women from pursuing an abortion, but they're also doing these uh, sort of bonding periods of the ultrasounds. So both CareNet and New Hope provide ultrasounds or refer for a doctor to perform an ultrasound for a client. And Karen Epstein Wise page on the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability um, essentially uh, states that there's an alternative purpose to providing these ultrasounds to clients. Um, and that is to have an opportunity for the woman who may have just found out they're pregnant to bond with their unborn child. Once they're on the examination table, it's the first time that they may be really thinking about the fact that they're pregnant, and this is kind of a method used to convince the woman to keep the pregnancy. They say, um, during this bonding period, many mothers who are on the fence choose life. So in a way, it's a service offered, but it also may be a tactic to persuade women further away from seeking an abortion. You spoke to some of the directors. Uh, what was the underlying message that you got behind how they saw the services that they provided and what they wanted people to know about what they're trying to do? 
both of the people that I spoke to were not um, incredibly confrontational about the uh, abortion procedures not being offered. Instead, they framed the picture as, we want women to understand the full range of options, um, abortion not being one of them, but essentially wanting clients to know that there are options aside from abortion. So if you do decide to keep a child, to keep the pregnancy, um, you can parent, you can adopt, um, and all these different means are accessible to you. Um, CareNet, uh, Paul Marshall, the president and executive director of CareNet, said essentially we want, we don't judge anybody, uh, we just want them to know all of the information that is available to them. Emma Foltz is an assistant news editor. You can catch her full three-part series on the Daily Orange website. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for having me. Betsy West, filmmaker and professor, has been making films about women and women in power to inspire audiences around the world. For her last project, West wanted to do a film capturing the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so with her partner, Julie Cohen, she sent out an email requesting to interview the 82-year-old. Justice Ginsburg's response, not yet. I'm Christopher Cicchello, and I cover features for the Daily Orange. So the team together, they saw that not yet as an opportunity, not as a closed door. And together, they did copious amounts of research with their team, interviewed friends and family. And once I think Ginsburg saw this, she slowly let her let, let the two into, the, into her home and intimate parts of her life. This movie, RBG, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a monumental figure in American judicial life and American politics, she had a career before she became a Supreme Court justice. That was a focus of this documentary that I think a lot of people that went into it did not expect. Why did Betsy West and Julie Cohen want to approach it in that way? The duo kind of agreed that they wanted to focus on that early portion of her life because they thought that it wasn't a story that pe enough people knew about. And as she says in the story, um, that Ginsburg was l the legal architect of the women's rights movement. And this film exemplifies that through her work with the 14th Amendment, both on and off the bench. Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the way the world is for American women. I became a lawyer when women were not wanted by the legal profession. Thousands of state and federal laws discriminated on the basis of gender. She was following in the footsteps of the battle for racial equality. She wanted equal protection for women. Men and women are persons of equal dignity and they should count equally before the law. Now, she Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the, the oldest the justice on the what court, like but they wanted to paint this picture of vitality, uh, the movie actually begins with her doing a plank. How, how did they get access into that part of her life? I mean, she, she is clearly someone that has this following that is significantly larger, this name RBG. Correct. They actually, in the film, interview the person who came up with the notorious RBG, which is obviously in homage to the notorious B.I.G. We welcome today Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
She's become such an icon. Would you mind signing this copy? I am 84 years old, and everyone wants to take a picture with me. <laughs> Notorious RBG. Yeah, yeah. When you come right down to it, the closest thing to a superhero I know. They followed Ginsburg to many of the talks that she did throughout the country, and as Wes said, Ginsburg almost became more comfortable with their presence at these events, and that's how, uh, in one of the culminating moments of the film, uh, they're able to have access to her doing these workouts that her trainer even said she never misses, she hasn't missed a day in years, and she is so dedicated, um, you know, especially after battling breast cancer um, two different, on two different occasions. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not the only person in your story to have faced, I, I, I guess, adversity when it comes to the issue of gender. Um, West entered an industry that was predominantly male. Tell me a little bit about how her experience here in Syracuse began what would be a career that would span a, a long time in the journalism industry. So Newhouse gave uh, West a fellowship and... As she said, this kind of gave her some mobility to invest in herself. She kind of said, you know, a lot of people didn't have that type of access, and that provided her a lot of freedom. And, you know, she said that she was the only woman in a lot of the newsrooms that she was getting into. She worked at a radio station, WHEN, and was one of the only women. Another woman came later. She came from... Brown University, which she talked about, very academically rigorous. But Newhouse kind of gave her that professional insight, and it was the first time that she really learned the interworkings of television, radio, and film. There is one point that you write about where they're actually receiving um, an Emmy Award, and they they reflect a, a little bit of, of RBG herself. Yeah, I mean, as they're receiving the award, both West and Cohen uh, got down and did a plank uh, for, for a count of 30 seconds in honor of the justice, um, which was definitely a very poignant moment. The the compliments they, they enjoyed the most actually came not necessarily from their peers or from other filmmakers, but they came from... The audience, uh, for sure. They definitely loved receiving all the awards and being recognized by their peers, but it was almost more gratifying to see that a wide demographic was being enthralled by this film. And many of them young. Absolutely. Uh, Wes pointed out that one of her favorite moments was when she went would go to some of the uh, screenings and, you know, little girls, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, would be, um, you know, they would have the wigs, their hair pulled back, the large glasses, um, and gavels. So, I mean, they saw this 82-year-old woman um, as a hero. Chris Ciacchello is an assistant copy editor for Pulp. You can find his profile of Betsy West, the SU alumna behind the acclaimed documentary RBG, and winner of 22 Emmys herself on the Daily Orange website and in the podcast description. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Nico Benelli and his teammates were walking back from Marshall Street to their dorms when one of his teammates pointed to the three million pound red and orange object that looms above Syracuse University. Walt, the teammate said. I'm Sarah Slavin and I cover features for the Daily Orange. The name has stuck for the crane, one of the largest in the world, which is being used for the current renovations to the Carrier Dome. So, Sarah, this crane 
is enormous. Just to give people a perspective of why it is such a, and I hate to say it this way, big deal on this campus, how tall is it? It's 580 feet. What is its purpose on this campus right now? Yeah, so it's um, working on the renovations to the Carrier Dome, which have been going on for a while now, and are going to be the crane will be here for another year. For another year, yeah. and it's uh, the, the Carrier Dome. For those not familiar, is undergoing a renovation that will remove the current roof and replace it, and the the roof is being rebuilt essentially to be able to support a new jumbotron, and that it can also carry all the snow, but this crane, it has gotten this following. It was named Walt the Crane by Nico Bonelli and his teammates. Just give us a perspective of like how big was the social media following behind this thing? Yeah, so Nico, who's a freshman on the men's rowing team, he started this account after like his friends, they just like named it Walt, were sending pictures in their group chats, and he was like I'm just going to make this account, probably just have following from, like, my friends, people who live near the dome, and it picked up really quickly. The Instagram account got picked up by a local news station, and he said that when that it got picked up, it went from 900 followers, which is, like, pretty a lot for not having any coverage before, to 1,900, and Nico also Instagram DM'd the account to Barstool Cues, which is a popular account on campus, and he said, I'm literally the biggest thing on campus, which is, like, both figuratively the crane, and then also he has a large following, and from that, they also took off, so when I wrote the story, it had about... 4,200 followers, and now it's about 5,000, so. Yeah, and I can say that I was the 5,000 follower this morning. <laughs> it got this big following. Why, did, did you get any impression as to why Nico started this account to begin with? He just thought it would be, like, a fun thing to do. There was no, like, dead reason, like, oh, I want to get famous, I want to, like, like, he, did, he wasn't, he didn't expect it to get big. I mean, I think he, he said that he knew that, like, it was interesting, so, like, people would like it, but he didn't expect it to get this big. And he actually got a lot of outreach from other people. So his the, the direct messages on Instagram that he's received, they've been from all sorts of different people. Is that right? Yeah, he gets like tons and tons and tons of direct messages. Um, a lot of them are photos that people send and he posts them. And usually they're good. He got one. He got a few from like people who lived in Sadler claiming that the name of the crane is called Craney. And they, they made accounts for that. And without Nico saying anything, his followers went and reported those accounts. And he's, they said that they were impersonating him. And Instagram took them down. So a dedicated follower base. And not only Syracuse University people that are responding to these accounts, they're actually people related to the crane itself. Yeah, yeah. So Jim Jatho, the head engineer, reached out to him like two days after he created the accounts. So that shows you how quickly, like, people were able to find it and he like instagram dm him he said he would give him a tour of the crane they haven't done that yet but he said he would do that and also a few days later their ceo reached out and was like like great work and he said my like pr person's gonna reach out to you we want to like get working on merchandise so there's another merchandise piece to it but the company also came out with their own merchandise so that yeah the company came out with that that merchandise idea yeah. but then also somebody in Syracuse University as well yeah so Henry Tuma who's a senior and he's in Whitman he has a little bit of experience with designing and managing like creative labels and so he created this merchandise 
fairly quickly. He said he did it in a class. And he created a website for it, a store. And without ever meeting or talking to Nico, he Instagram DM'd him and was like, hey, I made this merchandise. Like, what do you think? And Nico was totally on board. And the merchandise that Tuma made was very similar to Drake's, like, Scorpion album merch. And it's kind of based on, like, the Korean having, like, a world tour. And... Oh, that's they've had over like 35 orders and I just think that's really interesting because like Henry just like sent it to him without like any like meet, never meeting him before and the, the two have actually haven't even met they they just communicate over like Instagram and text messaging and one thing that really surprised me about about the impact of a, a giant piece of construction equipment was the way that people have identified with it there was an Instagram post on the article that you have that surprised me. You probably know which one it is. Tell me a little bit about the photo that I'm currently looking at. There are two feet. Yes. So two SUNY ESF students got tattoos of the crane. They got them like a little while ago. It was one of the girl's 18th birthday. And she was like, I want a tattoo. And her friend was like, I'll get one with you. And they were like, let's get the crane because they see it every day. SUNY ESF is in that area. And the funny thing is they actually got those tattoos before they knew the Instagram account even existed. So that shows you like the magnitude of the crane, like even before even even had the following, you know. And for people who live in that area, Sadler, Lawrence, even BBB and ESF, like, They see this crane all the time because they're always walking by, like every single day. Sarah Slavin is an assistant feature editor for The Daily Orange. You can catch Walt the Crane, an internet sensation in Syracuse, in the podcast description and probably outside any window you happen to be looking at. The infamous Sarah Slavin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to our reporters, Emma Fultz, Chris Cicello, and Sarah Slavin. This podcast is only possible with the audio production skills of Lizzie Kalma and her Crackerjack digital team, Kevin and Amy. Find new episodes of the DOPOD on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next Tuesday.